0: Well, we're continuing on this morning in our study of the epistles of Jesus. Seven epistles that he wrote to the churches in Asia in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Today we move from chapter 2, which has four of the letters, to chapter 3, which has the last three of the letters. So today we come to the letter to the church at Sardis. Revelation chapter 3, 1 through 6 Let's read And to the angel of the church in Sardis Write And before I read If you have a red letter Bible You'll notice that this is in red You know, usually the red letters of a red letter Bible Because they're just the words of Jesus are in the Gospels there's a few other places in the New Testament where it actually quotes the words of Jesus. And this is read because these are the words of Jesus. So let's start over. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation for, of being alive, but you are dead. "'Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. "'For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. "'Remember then what you received and heard. "'Keep it and repent. "'If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, "'and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. "'Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, "'people who have not soiled their garments.'" And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, our theme this morning, we had one theme each each week, and our theme this morning is the faithful remnant. The faithful remnant, and of course, a remnant is um, something left over that remains when everything else is gone. And um, so, in the in the Bible, it's a it's a theme that we see frequently. Um, the theme of the remnant. For instance, um, in the Old Testament, in the story of Elijah, you remember when he was being persecuted by the king and the king's wife and by everybody who's in charge of Israel, and he was feeling all alone. And he was kind of complaining about it to the Lord. And the Lord said to him that there were 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. And every mouth that has not kissed him. So there were, he wasn't alone. There was a, there was a remnant of 7,000 who hadn't worshipped the idols that the king and Jezebel had been introducing. And then when Isaiah, the prophet, begins his ministry. He pronounces, um, he de- describes the scenario, spiritually speaking. In Israel, and it's very, very bleak. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. And he goes on and on, it just paints such a bleak picture. But then, verse 9, he says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a remnant, we should have been like Sodom and Gomorrah completely destroyed and gone. From the face of the earth. And then later in Isaiah. When Isaiah begins to look forward to the return. The exile. And the return from the exile in Babylon. He says. Though in 10.22. Though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea. Only a remnant of them will return. Most of them were. In fact it's about 99% that stayed in Babylon and only 1% came back. But God always has a remnant of his people. Even though it may be a small group, it's a remnant. And here in this letter we see that although the church as a whole wasn't doing well, there's a remnant in the church that is being faithful to the Lord in the midst of those who are caving in the world's pressure and we are also told in this epistle just how precious this remnant is to him these people who are faithful when everybody else is not being faithful you will have you still have a few names in Sardis people have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So what makes these people so special? What did they do that was so great that Jesus uh, esteems them so highly as he says here? Well, all we're told is that they didn't soil their garments. Implying that the others had soiled their garments somehow. So how is it that the others had soiled their garments? Well, it says to them, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You have a reputation for being alive. But in fact, you're dead. Now, from the outside, they appeared to be a lively church, well thought of and well spoken of, a place where things were really happening. But in the inside, it was a different story. It says that they were dead on the inside. But, if we really read carefully, we'll see that that's, it's not trying to say that they're absolutely dead inside. He's not saying that the church is filled with fake Christians who really don't know the Lord at all. And you can see this from a number of things in the passage. Number one, they're told to wake up Well, dead people don't wake up they're dead. Sleeping people wake up. People who look dead. Acting dead. But if they can wake up, they're not really completely dead. Second of all, their life from Christ is shriveling up. It's not gone. Like, it says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. You see, they're not really completely dead. They're just have so little in them they're about to die. Perhaps only a f- few warm embers. I know fireplace analogies are not popular when it's 95 degrees in August, but the point is there's okay, we can talk about barbecues. There's a, f- <laughs> a few warm coals on the bottom, still, you can get it going. To, uh, it, so there's something there it's not completely gone of warmth or light or life um, they weren't fulfilling their calling he says I have not found your works complete in the sight of God that doesn't mean that there's nothing there but they're not complete they had forgotten what they had received remember then what you received and Heard. So this is what it is talking about that they had soiled their garments. Now, um, let's talk a little bit more about this soiling of garments. Um, you know in the in the book of revelation the concept of white garments is the concept of a a pure life a life that is reflective of Christ in it sort of defines the term in revelation 19:8 where it says that the it was granted to the bride to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So that was the people who hadn't soiled their garments. That's like a description of them. But these folks who have soiled their garments, they are in some way impure. They're double-minded. They have trying to keep one foot In the church and one foot in the world. They're polluted. An unholy mixture of love for Christ and love for the world. Trying to do what Jesus says can't be done. No one can serve two masters. For either they will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Matthew 6.24 But they were trying to serve both God and man. They were trying to have the pleasures of heaven and the pleasures of earth. They were trying to do what is condemned all over and over and again in the New Testament. Like in James 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So that's what's going on. They have dirty clothes because they have, they're, they're after two things. They're trying to be after two things. After the Lord, and yet after worldly approval as well. So let's unpack this a little bit more, this idea of the soiled garments... And yet, pretending to be alive when inside they're actually dead. Their their deadness refers to the fact that their love for God is going out. Their, Their reputation of being alive is indicative of their love of human approval. As humans, you see, we're not who we should be, and uh, it's not really that difficult to get people to admit that they're not perfect, but we sure try to come across as people who are what they should be. This is part of our sinful nature. People wear layers of makeup to hide the real person who's behind it all, and I'm not Criticizing practices of beautification but it's interesting how many people spend so much time beautifying the body and so little time addressing the mess that's inside they're more concerned about how others think of them than they are about what they're really like or how God thinks of them People can be more devoted to their house, for instance, than they are to what's going on in their house. More interested in Facebook friends thinking that they have a great life than doing the mundane daily things that actually are the building blocks of a great life. Couples more interested in their marriage looking alive than devoting that effort and time into actually having a living marriage relationship. Today you hear a lot about people wanting to feel alive. But when you peel away the onion, I think many times you'll find... That they don't really care that much about feeling alive. What they really want is for others to think they're alive. This is the way we humans are. And it shouldn't surprise us then that this happens with Christians inside the church as well as it does out in the world. We also desire the approval of men. We desire to look alive. We desire to look godly and filled with God, whether or not we are. Peter addresses this in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable Beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now I know that this passage was originally directed to women, but certainly it applies to all of us and it exposes our tendency to care about what other people, how other people view us, instead of what we're really like inside that only God can see. When Jesus came. He confronted this problem, didn't he? This problem of people trying to look alive when inside they were actually corrupt. Matthew 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, he said. And he referred to hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. That they may be seen by others. Matthew 6. And then in Matthew 23, he confronted the Pharisees, saying, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. And then speaking to them, he said, For you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear outwardly beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You know, that's an amazing illustration. You know, you go to a cemetery and it's so beautiful. You know, the grass is so well kept and there's flowers and there's stones with carvings and really it's so nice. But down deep, there's rotting Smelly bodies down in there. And that's a, such a great analogy for the way people can be. We are all whitewashed and clean and beautiful on the outside, but inside we're full of dead men's bones. And Jesus quoted Isaiah twenty-nine, thirteen, uh, frequently. as one of his favorite Old Testament verses to quote. So he said, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. So Jesus knew well this reality and now he's pointing it to this church in Sardis. Now of course, the fact that they're alive, that they appear alive, but are actually dead, you know, it's, there are obviously dead churches. Churches that don't appear alive. That appear dead and are dead. And there's a legitimate reaction against dead churches. We're repelled by what is dead. Or close to being dead. Nobody likes, you know... Going to the nursing home. Nobody go does that for the joy of it. I mean, they may love, have so much love that they'll go, but just seeing people close to death and whose bodies are so old and, you know, it makes us feel uncomfortable. It's hard to get people to go to those things. We're repelled by that. And it's very easy for churches to become dead. For the prayers to be just repetitious and root. The, uh, they're just going through the motions. Nobody seems to be really feeling anything. That there's no reason to do what you're doing except the fact that you've been doing it for a long time. And nobody really knows why you do it except for that. There's no real meaningful fellowship, only superficial chatting that takes place about the weather, about this or that, but nothing really important. There's a focus on the outward aspects, the the furniture of worship, or the furniture of church life. You know, where's the picnic going to be? Or what time is the meeting going to start? Or how we used to do it this way, and now we do it that way? Or how my old church did it this way, and oh this church does it that way? And it's all just... Worrying about the little ceremony of church life. There's no passionate seeking of Christ and no sense of His presence. There's no tears and no laughter and no exuberance and no vulnerability. And just as there are obviously dead churches, there are dead Christians too. How easy it is for us to shrivel up in our souls. Or to have never had the life of Christ in the first place and just be pretending. Or even those of us who have regular devotions. It's so easy for them to be dead themselves. For us just to be going through the motions. To drift away from Jesus. Even when you're coming to church. Even when you're spending time in God's word every day. It's still easy to drift away from Jesus. We are drawn to what is alive and people are drawn to you if they see you as alive and how we love that we love people's attention and admiration and adoration and we love to be loved and we love to be flattered and how pastors love their churches to be full of people and how they love congregations they're eager to hear what they have to say But actually being alive means dying to worldly approval. Being alive spiritually, it means dying to worldly pleasures. But we think maybe they can somehow have both. And that's what these people were doing. There's a real temptation to fake aliveness to be more interested in looking godly than in being godly. You can't fool God but it's really not that difficult to fool people. Instead of bearing fruit by abiding in Christ we want to tape plastic fruit onto the dead tree of our lives hoping that we can fool people. Instead of cultivating flowers by the toil and attentiveness of our relationship with Christ, we stick plastic flowers into the dirt and hope that others will be fooled. We're asked to pray in public, for example, and we pray long, lofty prayers which actually dwarf the prayers we actually pray when we're alone. How does a church wrongly get the reputation for being alive? How does a church that is not alive, like this one, get a reputation for being alive? How does a church come across as very much with it, when actually it's asleep? Well they do that by Adapting themselves to what they think is going to impress people by conforming to the style that is popular in the world. Now I think you can see that tendency today in the uh, the way that many churches are tempted to conduct themselves, and I, I'm here very concerned about not being critical. I don't want to be critical of other churches that do things differently. Some churches might look at us and say, look, you know, they they are adapting to the world by having drums or guitars or, you know, singing lively songs. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm not interested in the, the specifics so much as asking what is it that really is motivating us to do things? Is it... S- Seeking Christ and trying to help god 's people seek him, or is it trying to gain favor with the modern mindset through clever marketing and adapting ourselves to things that are that are popular in the modern world, like you know maybe if our worship service looks more like a rock concert or looks more like a late night TV show maybe maybe uh, people will be more likely to come maybe if we had cool leaders or impressive buildings or eloquent preachers or cutting edge innovations light machines and fog machines worship styles that look more like a pep rally that stir up people to, to be enthusiastic. Striving to entertain. Now I don't want to accuse anyone of doing these things. Just ask the question. What motivates us? Why are we seeking these things? Is it because we're trying to help people seek Christ? There are so many churches it seems to me that are striving to look alive. Pouring thousands of dollars into trying to look alive and many times very successfully from a business perspective the question is 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 their thirst to look alive really connecting them to the true source of life or just trying to capture people's attention with techniques Jesus said seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. So what does a dead church do to become alive? Jesus tells us right here. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you have received and keep it. And repent. So four things four things Jesus tells churches that are not alive to do to become alive. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you've received, and keep it, and repent. It seems to me two of these things are especially relevant to the younger generation. I just want to point them out. First of all, Strengthen what remains. In the culture of the younger generation, there's an awful lot of burn it to the ground and let's start over. The Bible says strengthen what remains. And the second thing I'd like to point out is that it says remember what you received And keep it. Remember what you received. And keep it. This didn't start with you. This is something that has been passed down. And you have received it from someone older than you. I know it's hard to hear. For some young people. You received it from a generation that went before you. And your job is first of all to receive it and second of all to keep it and third of all to prepare to pass it on to the next generation. You are just one in a long line and I know that every generation thinks they are it and your generation is very tempted to think you are what it's all about. But you're not. And especially in the context of the Christian church, the gospel of Christ is what it's all about. And you are just people that are receiving it from others, walking in it yourself, and passing it on to somebody else. And you need to do that well because, guess what? One day you're going to be in that cemetery, and you're going to be long forgotten, but the impact of what you did will still Go on rippling in the world. How you received it, how you kept it, how you passed it on. That's all that will be left. This is true of churches and of individuals. It seems to me that there are three groups in this church there's those who are doing great who are not soiling their garments, who are called worthy by Jesus. Then there are those who looked alive but actually were not, but who would indeed respond well to these words of rebuke from Jesus and repent of their sin and remember what they've been taught and wake up and get going. And then the third group is those who looked alive but weren't, who would not give heed to these words of Jesus, And one day, when they don't expect it, Jesus will come against them, as he says in this passage. And I would suggest that most churches have these three groups in them. Most churches have these three groups in them. Some are doing great and seeking the Lord. Some who are not doing great, but who will pay attention to the rebuke of the Lord and and begin to change and seek him and some for whom they just will not listen. What about you? For most of you people think that you're spiritually alive. The question is, are you? Are you a Christ lover? Or just a churchgoer? When is the last time you got choked up just about the privilege of having Jesus? For some, there may be a sin in their lives which drains their life from them. A lingering sin, an unconfessed sin, an unconfronted sin. Running rampant in their souls like an infection can run rampant in the body. And instead of taking a spiritual shower of repentance and remembering, and like Jesus said, they put on deodorant and perfume to drown out the dead smell. so others don't notice. Some of you are the faithful remnant that Jesus speaks so fondly of. Even if you don't recognize the fact that you are, that doesn't mean you're not. And the Lord will never blot your name out of the book of life, but will confess your name before his Father and his angels. And one last point. It is easy for us to think that these soiled ones, or I'm sorry, these unsoiled ones, it's easy for us to think that they're like the heroes. When we're 2,000 years away, looking back on them, that they're the heroes. But what would we have thought of them if we had been part of the church at Sardis? Or let me ask it in another way. What do you think these people who appeared alive but actually weren't thought of the ones who who were described as having unsoiled garments? I don't think they were probably the popular people in the church. Or think about it this way. When Jesus came, when he first came as a baby in the manger, who were the people on earth who were spiritually alive that we know about? Zacharias and Elizabeth Joseph and Mary Simeon and Anna they weren't the ones necessarily who looked cool and exciting, were they? They weren't popular people, even in their own communities. But they were the ones God was fond of. The ones his heart was drawn to. Not the cool people and the strong people and the clever people. Luke six, Jesus says in Luke sixteen fifteen, What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You know, that's often the opposite. If that is true, too, what is exalted before God is often an abomination in man's eyes. If you are interested in following up on the thought of this sermon, I would urge you to read a book called "The Courage to Be Protestant" by. My theology, one of my theology professors, David Wells. It's uh, not about what it sounds like it's about. It's not about being Protestant or Catholic or anything like that. It's a poor title, I think. It's about just being willing to be a church that seeks after the Lord and doesn't try to become more than it is and isn't willing to be less than what it's supposed to be. So, if you can, uh, thats again, that's The Courage to be Protestant by David Wells. Now let's come to the table of the Lord. What a great honor and privilege it is to be invited to this feast. And not everyone is invited, but only those who have given their hearts to Jesus Christ and who are seeking him only those who can say I am starving if I don't have Jesus I can't survive on this world's food I have to have Jesus if that's the way you are then this is for you He has provided for us only a little at this time. For we only see Him and experience Him in a partial way right now. One day we will see Him face to face and there'll be no holding back and no barriers. But in the now, we get little tastes. And they're precious and they're beautiful. And they're enough to hold us over until that day let us pray Lord Jesus Christ we come to you today as needy people we look in ourselves we just don't have what we need O Lord and we look at this world and in this world it's just full of vain promises, but there is no real reality in this world that can give us what we need. We need you. We all, oh Lord, need you. And we thank you that you have supplied us, yourself, that you have given us your Son, the greatest treasure we thank you, Lord, that he is so valuable that it is worth selling everything we have in order to possess him. And we willingly, therefore, lay down our lives and everything we own, everything we have, because Christ is our life. And we pray that now as we partake of this little taste of his goodness. That you would strengthen our hearts and remind us of his love for us. And allow us, O Lord, to walk in him. Out back into this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.